Well, if you've been coming for the last few weeks, you know this is one of the most enjoyable moments in the service for me, for I get to introduce our guest preacher. But this one was haunted me a bit because how in the world do you summarize 15 years of dear friendship in a minute or two? You know, I've been at a loss. My wife and I were sitting in bed and it was, I don't know, close to one o'clock last night. And there were just tears because tears not of, of sadness, but of joy and of thankfulness. And yet at the same time, a deep inability to know how can I express to you all what the man who's going to come preach has meant to me. You know, we first met not, uh, you might say, in the best of circumstances. I had moved into D.C. I was going to be working actually with a dot-com. This was back in 2000 when dot-coms hadn't quite yet gone out of business. And uh, the friends I was working with were going to a church, and they said, listen, come to the Wednesday night Bible study, um, and then we can chat afterward about you know, your, your uh, work with us. And I said, great. So I get down there. I'm in the heart of the city. I get lost. I'm in a church. It's an old building. It's got stained glass windows. I'm confused. There are people milling about. Someone comes up to me and introduces himself. And I'm just looking for my friends. I'm kind of annoyed. I'm like, listen, I, yeah, it's great to meet you, but hey, have you seen Duncan? Have you seen Sebastian? No, no, no. They may not be here. Okay, just why don't you leave me be? I'm going to sit in the back. So I go sit in the back, and the man walks away, not seemingly hurt. And then I watch him walk away and walk around and walk down front and get in front of the pulpit. And I realized, oh, my goodness, I totally blew off the pastor. <laughs> and uh, you might think he would blow me off as a result, but we had lunch about two weeks later at a subway, and I could not have imagined how that lunch would lead to another lunch would lead about six to nine months later to serving as a pastoral assistant at that church, would lead to many an evening in my home rejoicing with us, mourning with us over miscarriages, thinking through family strife and marital woes, and just walking the Christian life together. Then going through the deserts of seminary, which what they felt like at times, there in Louisville, then bringing us back to labor alongside him at CHBC. You know, as I thought about the last 15 years, um, there's a there's an image early Christians used to use of the, of the pelican, one who would sort of pluck his breast until it bled in order to feed her young. And that selflessness is often the kind of selflessness that marks our guest preacher. For our our relationship is good; it is deep. Uh, we loved our service together, and yet. Our preacher is not the kind of man who is going to prevent his own desires and wishes from the body of Christ and from the kingdom ideally growing by giving up those that he has raised up and trained. He gathers and then he scatters and he does so selflessly. And it has been a glorious thing to watch. And I pray I have something of that same ministry that same kind of kingdom-mindedness that is willing to love hard and then do that hard work of releasing. And I'm thankful for one other thing. Because if there's anything our guest preacher has also taught me, in addition to that kind of selflessness, that kind of undeserved love, is how Christ has loved us, how He's loved me. It's, it's that He's taught me that God is big. I think a lot of us, we become Christians and we think, okay, the kingdom in some way rests upon my shoulders. You know, if, if, if I just do this and I'm faithful this way, then, then God's going to get His work done through me. And we, we bear in some ways the burden and the brunt of that. And yet He helped me see that, oh my goodness, the Lord who made the heavens and the earth, who calls the seas to be still, He doesn't need us. He doesn't need Brad Wheeler. He doesn't need my pastor at UBC. He will be faithful and His church will be victorious. And we thought about earlier this morning, 
And when you know that God, the God is so clearly in the Scriptures, oh, it frees us to serve Him with abandon and with great love and with tremendous confidence. And if I have any confidence as one who loathes public speaking and who never wanted to be a pastor, it's the confidence that I serve that God and you serve that God too. And I have come to see that better through the ministry of this man. Brother, I'm so grateful for you. And I'm going to stop and you're going to come up and you're going to preach. Thank you. Thank you, Brad, for that gracious introduction. Um, you can take these installation vows away with you and use them as a prayer list. Do you think about that? Don't throw these away. Stick them in your Bible. Pray for Brad. Uh, pray for the other elders. Pray for yourselves as a congregation. It's a wonderful tool we've just been given. What a joyful occasion this is. Uh, thank you so much for the privilege of being here to uh, address the congregation on this special morning. Uh, we're here as God's people. So Brad is about to take you through First Peter, Lord willing, starting next week. Let's just, uh, let's just go and open up to First Peter. Grab your Bible. Go to chapter 5. First Peter chapter 5. And let's begin there. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. This is not an obscure passage in the New Testament. Many of you no doubt have read this passage. Brad, I'm sure you've studied it and you'll study it more in your series coming up. As we meditate on a passage like this, we understand more of what it means to be a pastor. We feel the weight of it. We see more of, of how to do it. Uh, all these matters interest us here this morning. Now, I should just say, if you're here visiting this morning and you're not a Christian, uh, you have picked a particularly wonderful morning to be here. Uh, let me just say on behalf of this dear congregation, you are welcome to be here. Please, we meet this time every Sunday morning. Come along, uh, meet people here, come to know more about what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And a sermon centered on a pastor is actually a great way for you to get an introduction to Christianity because a pastor's life is to match his message. The role of a pastor is not only to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, but it's to exemplify it. So uh, Jesus Christ came and lived a perfect life of trust in his heavenly Father and died on the cross bearing God's wrath, his right and good wrath against us for our sins. In fact, for the sins of all of those that would repent of their sins and trust in him. And God raised him from the dead. And he ascended to heaven and presented this sacrifice to his heavenly Father. The book of Hebrews talks about this wonderfully. And the Father accepted this and in so being is reconciled toward all of us who repent of our sins and trust in him. Now, if it sounded like I was just speaking a foreign language to you, if you don't understand what I've just said, the best thing you can do is to try to understand what that basic message of Christianity is. Uh, try to understand what it means, not just to be a member of this local church, but to be a Christian, a disciple of Jesus Christ. 
A pastor's life should be a picture of that kind of self-sacrifice for the good of others. So if you're a non-Christian, keep coming along for the next few weeks as Brad works through this letter of 1 Peter. I think you'll find it a wonderful introduction to Christianity. Repent of your sins. Follow Christ today. But this subject of the ministry does particularly interest Christians, no doubt about it. Anything that gives us examples of how to follow our Lord Jesus Christ and and pastors are to be examples of how to follow Christ helps us. So if we are really Christians, we want to follow Christ and we are anxious to get anything that will help us to do that. But even more though than merely Christians, our topic this morning is of interest to church members. Of course, normally all Christians will be members of a local gospel-preaching church near them. They'll meet together regularly with those brothers and sisters for edification and encouragement. But we know today some Christians have been poorly taught on this. Uh, They don't do what they know they're supposed to do, though something in them tells them their need to do this. Uh, Others have sinfully neglected joining a local church. But normally, for the most part, Christians know that they're to be members of a church, and they are. And for Christians, for church members, few topics could be more significant than what those who lead them are commanded by God's Word to do. To do for God's glory, as we've been saying, and also for for their own good. And if such interest typifies all church members, particularly the members of this particular local congregation this wonderful morning. So after you guys have gone through a period of transition, with I think some pretty good preaching in the meantime from what I've been able to tell from afar, listening and and gathering stories. God seems to be answering the prayers of many, and surely on this morning your ears are eager to hear how it is that you may honor and bless the Lord today in your life here together as a local church. Surely you have a great interest in knowing what God is telling the one who he's calling to lead you specially, what he is to be like, what he is to aspire to, what he's to do. Uh, Friends, I think it's good for you to know your pastor's job description so that you can provide for him and pray for him. That's why you should take these away and use them as a prayer list so you can hold him accountable, so you can assist him in fulfilling what the Lord's calling him to do in his word. And and finally, uh, so that when the time comes, you can replace him because pastors wear out. They don't last forever. You know, right now he looks new and shiny. But, you know, the years will come, things will happen. After 15 years, he may look a little bit more like this, you know, and then time will continue still further. Just a a note here. As we age, Brad, God compensates for our diminishing physical abilities and fading attributes by giving us the wisdom of experience and perspective. It's not a bad swap. Congregation, realize that Brad is your new pastor, but soon enough he will be your former pastor. So just like you've had Pastor Johnson and Pastor McCarty and Pastor Lumpkin, you'll have had Pastor Wheeler. Brad's role is to lead you to the chief shepherd who will never leave you or forsake you. Brad is your temporary conductor to the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I love a phrase the Puritans used to have about the minister. They called him the friend of the bridegroom. The bridegroom is Christ. 
the pastor is the friend of the bridegroom. The bridegroom, the chief shepherd, is not changing and will not change of University Baptist Church. One member that this topic is of special significance to is Brad's wife, Erin. And um, I should just say here that I've known this couple since they were soon after their undergraduate days, and therefore I feel particularly protective of them. So I would just like to publicly at this point give a job offer, a standing job offer. Brad, you're welcome back anytime. Just give me time to make it in the budget work. But, I mean, if things need to move on, you, brother, you're always welcome back. All right? So we'll do that publicly in front of everybody. So there won't be any question about that. Now, Aaron, you are a dear sister. You're called to labor with Brad. In some ways, you kind of prayed him into the pastoral ministry, I think. So if you find trials and troubles in the pastoral ministry, dear sister, you do need to look in the mirror. I mean, um, it's you're just not going to have a pastor without trials and struggles because you are inviting 500 other people intimately into his life for him to love them and shepherd them. And that is necessarily going to be a costly co-laboring that you are being called to. Uh, The Lord, I think, has long prepared you to minister as the wife of a pastor. God has made you to suit Brad, uh, to be fruitful alongside him. I've seen that again and again over the years. Nothing I've seen in difficulties is in any way falsifying that good evidence. You guys are very fruitful together. I mean, you could look around in so many ways and see that. Well, now God is calling you to the chief care of the senior pastor of a congregation. That's a new role for you. Realize that that's a call that you have. I know it's not an office in the Bible, but it is clearly something that you're going to, that you've begun to experience and will continue to. And you need to take that fundamentally as a call from God. So realize that that is there. I pray that God will strengthen you for this task and that he will bless you through it and that he will bless others through you in it. And I'm confident that he already has and that he will. And, of course, it won't happen without sacrifice. Uh, You've seen that close up in other churches that you've been a part of. But that sacrifice is infinitely worth it. You can call my dear wife and talk to her about it. She would give you that testimony. So just keep that in mind. That's just part of it, and it's worth it. Of course, if you look in verse 1, you see that this passage is written to the elders, plural, the elders among you. So we know from elsewhere in the New Testament, like James or Acts chapter 20 or Titus chapter 1, that it was typical in the New Testament for there to be a number of men who would serve as elders, as pastors uh, of a local church. And in God's kindness, that's your situation here too. We just saw the elders of the church come up and hear Brad's vows and pray for him specifically. So for those other elders of this congregation, how absorbing these verses must be for you because God has called you too to the pastoral ministry in this church. You too are called to shepherd this congregation. Uh, You, along with whatever, uh, whatever other elders the Lord may raise up here, are charged by God to do this. So these warnings in these verses are yours. These charges are yours. These hopes are yours. But as much as they may interest such a group of godly men, these words interest Brad more than anyone else because practically this charge will fall especially on him. His leadership even of the elders, 
by counsel and prayer, by training and time. His leadership of this congregation will have much to do with the prosperity of this eldership and of this church. Brad, you bear a unique responsibility. You will have unique ability and opportunities as you teach this church from week to week from God's Word. Yours will be a special burden. You have been called to lead this church by, among other things, having a special charge of the public teaching of the church. So I want us to use this time to consider some of the practical faithfulnesses that Brad especially is now being called to as the pastor of this church. Before we do that, though, let me just make sure we, we notice the most important thing. This is not a, a straight-up expositional message on First, First Peter 5, 1-4. I'm, I'm giving a topical message here on pastoral ministry, but I want to make sure you notice the focus of this passage. If you were going to look for the focus of this passage, I wonder what you would say it would be in these first four verses. I think it's right there in verse 4. So Peter writes of Jesus Christ as the chief shepherd. He is the good shepherd. And you can tell because good leaders, the good shepherd, lays down his life for the sheep. So you are invited to share in his reward an unfading crown of glory. And all Christians are called to follow Christ's pattern of suffering and then glory. Look look up in uh, the last verse of the previous chapter. Look up in chapter 4, verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So it's not just Pastor Brad who gets to make some sacrifices. It's Christian Carrie. You know, it's, it's Christian Tom. It's, it's Christian Anne who suffers and makes sacrifices, but who then will receive glory. We know that followers of Jesus are in that pattern because that's Jesus' own pattern. Suffering, then glory. Well, the pastor is a pronounced example of that. Now, Brad has been well accustomed to suffering. You may not think so from looking at him, but I have experienced his love, his willingness to risk disapproval, even of his superiors. Uh, he is well equipped in that sense to hear and to follow this pattern. I think I'm being brought some water. Thank you. Thanks, man. It's a huge cup. I remember a story about 14 years ago. So when Brad was not the associate pastor of the church, but when Brad was an administrator in the church, he was a pastoral assistant, he was taking a class in ecclesiology, actually his first class in his MDiv at Southern Seminary. He was still working at our church. He had gone to take a J-term. And who was the professor of the class but yours truly? Uh, so I, his boss, was also his professor. And uh, one day in class, uh, something happened which I took no notice of, but which Brad noted. Apparently, so I'm told, and I think it's true, um, in class someone stood up and and asked a kind of rambling, somewhat incoherent question. And after a few moments of them initiating this question, I said, you know, why don't you get back to us when you can put a subject and a predicate together, right? When you've got a noun and a verb, just come on back. I said it in, in good humor, uh, but a, a failing of my personality is that I tend to be sinfully sharp in my words. And thus, I've always argued with the Lord I should be a professor, not a pastor. But here I am. Um, 
So during the break, Brad comes up to me. So remember, Brad is what, 14 at the time, 15? He's very young at the time. And he, he comes up to me, and with great love but great firmness, he says, Mark, uh, you sinned against that student. I am so clueless. I said, what student? I had no idea what he was talking about. He said, the student who in the back, you said he needs to be able to put a noun and a verb together to ask a question. You know, you, you crushed that guy. I said, well, I didn't mean to. He said, well, Mark, I know you didn't mean to, but I don't care. It's just that guy is now, he's never going to talk in public again. You know, and plus all these other folks in class are not going to be scared to ask any questions. Now, we don't need to go on with that story of my iniquity at that point. Um, but let me just say, I, I did attempt to repent. But what I want to, what I want to stop the, the picture at and point out to you is Brad's lack of fear of man. He was coming to a guy older than him who he respected and loved and enjoyed and whose humor he even enjoyed. But he was willing to risk alienating me, his boss, by telling me straight up to my face that I had sinned and furthermore that I needed to repent and seek, you know, reconciliation with that guy and with the class publicly, which I did. But what that tells me and what I've seen consistently for 15 years is this brother has a character where he will go through potential suffering even for himself if he thinks that's what is good and right. He will not suffer sin gladly. He will be willing to sacrifice potentially his own comfort in order to do what is good and right. And Brad, that to me smells like a pastor. That smells like the kind of thing that God is going to give you more opportunities than you want. Uh, to be able to do again and again as a pastor. That's what a good leader, a good shepherd does. He lays down his life for the sheep. Like Brad was laying down potentially my good opinion of him in order to love me and serve me there. That he did the exact right thing. And that's been consistent in our relationship. So friends, we, we read in the Bible of pastors doing this. We hear of pastors doing this. We, we see pastors doing this in imitation of Christ. But these are the years and the days This is a place where, Brad, you are called to do that in a special way and a consistent way again and again. So to that end, in our time together this morning, I simply want to share with you some reflections on four crucial aspects of pastoral ministry, four crucial aspects of pastoral ministry. And as I do that, I pray that you will be especially reminded and encouraged and that the church will be built up. I'm going to refer to passages outside of 1 Peter 5, uh, but let me just give you these four simple points Take these things down to pray for Brad and for this church. Um, number one, preaching. Preaching. When I first interviewed with the public committee at CHBC, I said that I was happy for uh, every aspect of my public ministry to fail if it needed to, uh, if it depended upon me, um, except for the preaching of God's Word. Now, what kind of thing was that for, for a young man to say to a pulpit search committee? Well, I was just trying to make clear that the one thing that is biblically necessary for the church is the preached Word of God. When the Reformation happened in the 16th century, uh, you find Reformers all over the continent of Europe, and they're not, they're not in a club called Reformers. They didn't know each other. They're just people who are reading their Bibles, and they're all coming up with the same thing as the chief mark of a true church, the right preaching of God's Word. Friends, if you don't have any idea whether a choir or a sermon is more important... You know, then, then something has happened in the air and in the, in the, the experience of evangelicalism for the last century that has clouded your judgment. 
When you look at Scripture, it's clear the one thing that is necessary for a true church is the preaching of God's Word. What I was saying to that committee that day is that others could do everything else, but I was specially set aside by the congregation for public teaching of God's Word. I was the only recognized elder at the time. So the Word of God would be the fountain of our spiritual life, both as individuals and as a congregation. And friends, God's Word has always been the chosen instrument to create and convict and convert and conform His people. God uses His Word to create faith. You are not here as a Christian except for the fact that God's Holy Spirit used His Word to encounter you when you were not looking for these truths that are in God's Word. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 2, When you received the Word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the Word of men, but for what it really is, the Word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. So the Word performs God's work in believers. I love that. For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. What verse is that? Hebrews 4, verse 12. That's right. Friends, Hebrews 4.12 is a great memory verse on the role of the Word in our lives. God's Word gives us new birth. James advises in James 1, In humility receive the Word implanted, which is able to save your souls. So the Word saves us. Peter claims regenerating power for God's Word in 1 Peter chapter 1. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring Word of God. And this is the Word which was preached to you. So this creating, conforming, life-giving power is in God's Word. The gospel that we were talking about earlier in Sunday school is God's way of giving life to dead sinners and to dead churches. Uh, He doesn't have another way. So if you want to work for renewed life and health and holiness in your church, then you have to work for it according to God's revealed mode of operation. Otherwise, you risk running in vain. God's Word is His supernatural power for accomplishing His supernatural work. Friends, that's why our eloquence or our innovations or our programs are so much less important than we think. It's God who is doing the work by His Holy Spirit through His Word. That's why we as pastors have to give ourselves to preaching, not to programs. That's why we need to be teaching our congregations to value God's Word over the things that we do. So friends, I don't know your congregation that well. I've been here before, but you know, you may think HD or Mike did that or this thing so well. You may think Brad does this other thing just so wonderfully. You realize, whoever pastor you've known, Pastor Johnson, whatever pastor you've known, God has always been the chef. All us guys are just waiters. We're just different waiters who bring you the good things God's doing. Churches get way too focused on us, like we're, we're coming up with the good stuff. We're not. We're just bringing it from the kitchen of the Word out to you guys. All right? So what you want to pray for Brad to be is a really good waiter. He needs to wait on the Lord in prayer. He needs to wait studying the Word. He needs to bring you accurately what the chef has prepared, not put his own seasoning on it. He just needs to give you what the Lord has prepared. That's his role. 
Preaching the content and the intent of God's Word is what God uses to call and build His people. God's Word builds His church. So preaching His gospel is primary. The just shall live by faith is the great news that we believe. Christ's righteousness given to us, we were thinking about, is from outside of ourselves. We can't do it. We can't make it. It's the Bible that tells us this great news. And that's the news that's to echo every Sunday here when you gather on the Lord's Day. So one thing that means is that you, Brad, must give yourself to the study of God's Word. And brother, you just have to know yourself well on this and make sure your elders get to know you over time. Pastors fall apart in two different directions on this. Some hide in their studies from the people. Others hide with the people from the study. Depends on which, which, which error we tend to make. My error is to hide with the people from the study. I don't like the hard work of study, and I'm a huge extrovert. So I love just talking to people. I have to discipline myself to go and study. Whichever Brad falls over on, it may be different times and different seasons of his life. You want to pray for him to put an appropriate emphasis on the study of the Word and realize when you're wanting to hang out with Brad and he's studying the Word, he's actually serving your soul. So give him a break. Hang out with somebody else. You know, when he stops studying the Word just to hang out with you, he has that, that moment stopped ministering to University Baptist Church and he's now ministering to one of its members, which is a fine thing to do, but you realize uniquely among all the members of the church, he especially has to give himself to the study of God's Word for the time when the whole church regularly comes together so that he can teach and edify everybody. What is going to be your main men's ministry in this church? Brad Wheeler's preaching. What is going to be your main women's ministry in this church? Brad Wheeler's preaching. What is going to be your main college ministry in this church? Brad Wheeler's preaching. What is going to be your main youth ministry in this church? Brad Wheeler's preaching. Now, am I trying to lift up Brad? No, I'm just telling you that when you have somebody who's a senior pastor and you've called them to come and preach the Word, that will determine more than any other single factor what goes on in your church. So you will do well to realize the significance of that, to give him space for that, and to encourage him in that labor. Because the labor of the study is wonderful but lonely. So encourage him in that good work. We ministers of the Word must give ourselves to faithfully read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest the Holy Scriptures and such studies as help us to know and understand them better. What did Paul say to Timothy? Preach the Word. Be instant in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. So congregation require Brad to give himself to the preaching of the Word. Brad, give yourself to the preaching of the Word. That's number one. That was the most important thing I'm going to say this morning, so if you need to tune out mentally, there it is. You've made it. Congratulations. Number two, though, prayer. In your personal life, Brad, pray. In your marriage, pray. In your home, pray. In your meetings with others, pray. In your elders' meetings and your members' meetings, pray. In, in your public services like this, devote so much time to prayer that nominal Christians are bored by talking to the God they only pretend to know. Don't worry when the people say you're spending too much time in prayer. You keep praying. It's a good way to spend your time together as Christians. You want to attract real Christians and hungry non-Christians, not please the nominal Christians. 
That's never a good way to grow a good church. Diligently call upon God by prayer for the true understanding of his word so that you may be able by the scriptures to teach and exhort with wholesome doctrine as you've just pledged to do and to withstand and convince those who oppose the truth as Paul told Timothy to do. Friends, prayer shows our dependence on God. It honors Him as the source of all of our blessings. And it reminds us that converting individuals and growing churches are God's work. It's not our work ultimately. You know, sometimes young guys will talk about uh, revitalizing a church. That's, that's God's work. We can preach, we can pray, but it's God who makes our labors work. Jesus reassures us that if we abide in him and his word abides in us, then we can ask anything according to his will and know that he will give it to us. What a promise. Ask anything according to his will and he will give it to us. Okay, what then should you pray for as you begin your labors here? Well, I can think of a lot of things. Let me just give you five quick examples, but you can think of a lot more. One, Paul's prayers. Uh, What more appropriate prayers could a pastor pray for his church he serves than all those prayers you see at the beginning of Paul's letters in the New Testament? Just take those as models for your own prayers. Allow these prayers to be a starting point for praying Scripture more completely and more broadly and consistently. Uh, Instruct the members here that one of their most important ministries is praying for you. Uh, Get copies of D.A. Carson's book, Praying with Paul, and just give them out to people. Get small groups studying D.A. Carson's book, Praying with Paul, where Don just goes through the prayers of Paul in the New Testament. Number two, pray that your preaching of the gospel would be faithful and accurate and clear. Number three, pray for increasing maturity of the congregation. Uh, That University Baptist Church would grow in corporate love and holiness and sound doctrine And such testimonies of the church and the community would be distinctively pure and attractive to unbelievers, to the students around who don't know the Lord. Four, very specifically, pray that sinners would be converted and the church built up through your preaching of the gospel. And five, pray for opportunities for yourself and other church members to do personal evangelism. I already talked to Aaron about the the lady that we met yesterday in the restaurant that I think you guys would get on really well with her and her husband. She's from California. I mean, so just have at it. You know, start praying for opportunities like that. Have them over to dinner. Get to know them, even as a pastor of a church. You know, spend time trying to get to know non-Christians and sharing the gospel. And pray about such matters publicly in your services. Just advertise repeatedly that you rely on God. I, I love it in our services when we not only sing God's praises and we not only read God's word and so listen, give him honor like that and and not only read his word and listen to his word, but when we also pray, because when we pray, we're honoring him. We're showing that we need what we can't give ourselves and that he is faithful and so we turn and rely on him. And pray personally as well. One of the most practical things you can do for your own personal prayer life and for the prayer lives of others is to put together a membership directory like we have at CHBC, like other churches use. Friends, my most important book is this, my Bible. Uh, My second most important book is my church membership directory. You know, this is uh, a listing with pictures and contact information of the uh, 900 and some odd folks that according to the book of Hebrews, I will give account for in a way I will not give account for you. 
So I have an eternal interest in this book. Uh, so get a membership directory. Be teaching people to pray through. I try to pray through two pages of ours every morning. I did two pages this morning. That way I can get through the whole thing every month. And so, friends, just make that common in your church life together, that you're praying through the membership of your church. Um, we pray through workers. We pray through uh, pastors elsewhere. We pray for all former staff members and interns. So we'll be praying for Brad and Aaron uh, as long as I'm around, as long as we have this membership directory, Cattle Hill Baptist Church will be regularly remembering Brad and Aaron Wheeler in prayer. And while they're here, University Baptist Church in prayer. So, friends, let me encourage you to use that as a very simple thing. And model for your congregation praying like this, Brad, this kind of faithful praying. Your, your prayers don't have to be long. Just take a sentence or two you've read in the Word that morning. Uh, and even if you don't know that other person you're praying for, well, just pray those things for them. And I think modeling this kind of prayer for others and encouraging the congregation to join into this kind of prayer can be a powerful influence on the growth of the church. I think it encourages selflessness in people's prayers. And one of the most important benefits is it helps to create a corporate culture of prayer uh, that I pray already characterizes uh, this dear church. So, Brad, give yourself to prayer personally and for the church. Number three, number three, personal discipling relationships. Personal discipling relationships. I think one of the most biblical and valuable uses of your time as the pastor here, Brad, will be to really do one of those things that you and Aaron are most gifted in, uh, to cultivate personal discipling relationships in which you regularly meet with a few people one-on-one or by folding them into your family to do them good spiritually and encouraging your wife to do the same. Uh, I don't need to say much about this. This is pretty obvious. But congregation, let me just be clear, you will hurt yourself if you discourage Brad from having personal friends. I was actually taught in seminary by a pastor who was teaching this pastoral ministry class not to have close friends inside the congregation because he said it creates jealousy. I think what that pastor said is godless and carnal. Uh, And I think he must have a very low standard of holiness and, and honest regeneration even in his church. So my challenge to you guys as the members of the church is pray against any kind of jealousy. Realize that Brad will need friends. And as he ministers to those people, they will be blessed, and in turn, the whole congregation will be blessed. So pray against any kind of juvenile gossip in this regard. And members of the church, for that matter, join in that ministry. Join in that ministry of giving yourself to others. Invite people after church on Sunday to call you in order to meet up during the week and talk about the sermon. How, how can, how can you use this for your life this week? You know, people at the door at our church on the way out will have to sometimes tell me, say nice things about the sermon. And I just always say something, well, I hope it was useful. Or how was it encouraging to you? You know, let me know what was useful to you. So I, w- I want to know how these sermons can be useful to you. And you guys can help each other with that. Uh, As you get to know other people, you might suggest a book the two of you could read together to discuss once a week, every other week. This often opens up then all the other areas of a person's life for conversation, for accountability, for prayer. So whether or not you tell somebody else that you're discipling them doesn't matter. What matters is that you love them, that you initiate spiritual care and concern for them. The goal is to get to know them and love them in a distinctively Christian way, to do them good spiritually. So initiate personal care and concern. I think this practice of personal discipling is helpful on a number of fronts. It's a good thing for the person being discipled, obviously, because they're getting biblical encouragement and advice 
from somebody who may be a little further along in life or in their walk with God. So in that way, discipling is another channel through which the Word can flow as one-on-one the Word comes through these conversations into the hearts of other members as it's worked out in the context of personal fellowship. I think it's good for the one who disciples as well, whether you're you're Brad or a non-staff elder. Uh, It shows that when other members of the church are doing it, it's not only something a super-Christian does. This is what all Christians do. Christians care for other people. Christians try to help other people follow Jesus. Whether that's evangelism or discipling, that's just what Christians do. It's not what super-Christians do. It's not what mature Christians do. It's what real Christians do. So if you're, you tell me you're following Jesus, and you're not trying to help other people follow Jesus, I just don't know what you mean when you say you're following Jesus. Help me understand what that would look like, to follow Jesus and not be giving your life for others, to come to know him and be built up in him. Friends, this needs to be the basic tenor of this church. Now, maybe this has been for 40 years. I don't know. But I'm just telling you, this needs to be the basic tenet of this church. Your own discipleship to Christ should show itself in your helping other people become disciples of Christ. And Brad, another healthy byproduct of your discipling in particular is that I think it helps to break down any defensive resistance you may find to your pastoral leadership. Because when you get a new pastor, there will always be change. You know, sometimes in the SBC these days... uh, you know, I've, I've heard it said, oh, a Southern Seminary is putting out Calvinists and they're splitting churches. And I've heard some older guys say, who are not even particularly Calvinistic, and just kind of laugh and say, no, that's like saying it was liberals that were splitting churches out of Southern Seminary 30 years ago. What split churches are young men? It's young men coming out of seminary with high acuity and very poor, poor depth perception. They know what's right and wrong, but they don't know how to get there. That's what splits churches. Personal discipling relationships help to mollify critics helps to show people you love them, helps to let people learn that you are trustworthy, that your genuine concern is for their spiritual welfare. They're going to be more likely to see you as a caring friend and a spiritual mentor and a godly leader and less likely to misunderstand your gradual initiatives for change as kind of personal power grab or some kind of self-centered ego trip or overly critical negativism. So developing these kinds of relationships establishes personal knowledge of yourself, which is helpful in nurturing personal trust of your character, of your motives, of growing an appropriate level of confidence in your leadership among the congregation. It gradually breaks down any we versus him barrier uh, that sadly, often but subtly, stands between a congregation and a new pastor. And I think it's a helpful way to pave for biblical growth and change to occur. So, uh, just a word to the congregation here. A a brother we served with as an elder at CHBC, who's now an elder at a church that we planted, uh, Jeremy McLean, was sitting there in an intern discussion a couple of years ago, and one of the interns, we have pastoral interns who come through for five months. They're with us, and then they go and do whatever they're going to do. But during one of these intern discussions, the, the whole staff is sitting there, the pastoral staff is sitting in the outside circle, the interns in the middle circle. One of the interns is commenting on just wait, what great pastors we have at this church, what, what great shepherds. And one of the brothers who was an elder of the church who was sitting there just said, uh, you know, well, I, I think that's true, but by God's grace, we also have a church that wants to be shepherded. We have Christians who want to be pastored. And that's a real gift from the Lord. 
And that is so true. I mean, what, what a church needs uh, as much as good elders is people who want to grow in Christ and people who want others to help them grow in Christ and people who are humble in their hunger. Friends, that just starts having joy cascade through a congregation as people can be generous with each other and see the work of God's Word going on. So, Brad and University Baptist Church, give yourself to doing good to each other spiritually. Give yourself to personal discipling. Number four of the four, patience. How appropriate that that's the last of the four. Patience. So, when I arrived at Capitol Hill Baptist Church, I waited three months before I preached my first Sunday morning sermon. I simply attended. Uh, I had asked for that time in conversations before I held uh, before I rather I arrived, and when I explained my reasons, they agreed. I think it just showed respect for the congregation. It gave me time to learn what they were accustomed to. It showed them I wasn't in a hurry to change everything. Now, I realize that not every pastor has the luxury of waiting three months to preach after our arrival, but Brad, the, the congregation here has shown some patience with you. As I say, you've gotten in some not bad fillers for a few months. Uh, you've had a, a couple of months before you have to begin your regular preaching ministry here. And that's a kind of patience the congregation has been willing to show with you. That's a good thing. You want to build on that in pastoral ministry. Uh, run at a pace the congregation can keep up with. Uh, of course, there are some things you might need to change rather quickly. Um, but as much as it is possible, do those changes quietly and with an encouraging smile, not loudly and with a disapproving frown. Uh, we are indeed to reprove, rebuke, and exhort, Second Timothy 4.2. But Paul says to do it with great patience and instruction. That that's how we do it, with great patience and instruction. So make sure the changes you want to implement are biblical or at least prudent, and then don't implement them. Patiently teach people about them so that they can be implemented with a minimum of problem. I think if you teach God's Word before you expect them to embrace the changes you're encouraging, you'll have a much more peaceful congregation. So the patient instruction is the biblical way to sow broad agreement that an agenda is biblical before moving forward. Now, once this broad agreement is sown, then by all means, you know, go right ahead. You can wait too long. That's, also, that's another problem. Um, but I think the change is less likely to be divisive and the church is going to be less prone to fracture, fracture if you just carefully teach first. And as you work for change, work also to extend genuine Christian goodwill towards people. Second Timothy 2.24, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. So be patient. I think the key to displaying and actually having this kind of patience is to have a right perspective on three things. Time, eternity, and success. Time, eternity, and success. First, time. Most of us think about five years down the road, even if, if that much. But I think patience in the pastorate requires thinking in terms of, of 20 years. 30 years, 40 years, even 50 years. That starts putting all of our difficulties in perspective. Sometimes you and I have seen young men go with a strong conviction, go into a church and wreck that church with that strong conviction. Because what they're thinking of is them individually being faithful 
as opposed to that church being well-shaped. Sometimes the shaping of a church will take longer than the shaping of the pastor's opinion. You just have to keep going, keep praying. Pray other people will see the same thing that you're seeing. Uh, I think of John MacArthur in that Nine Marks interview he did where he told about that revolt of his staff uh, after about five years. It would have caused just about anybody to leave. If he had been asking me for advice, then I think I would have told him to leave. But, you know, he stayed, and now he can look back 40 years later on the fruit that God has brought from a long period of faithfulness, just the ex- exponential fruitfulness. Well, brother, I think you have to say, are, are you in it with this congregation for the long haul, 20 years, 30 years? Or are you figuring on moving up the ladder, taking a bigger church in five or ten years, one closer to California? You know, Are you building a congregation or a career? Well, it's not sinful for a pastor to leave a church. It's not the same thing as a marriage. You know, I've advised brothers sometimes to leave one situation and go to another. But I think it's unusual. Today it's common, I think, for carnal reasons. I think in reality it's unusual. I think your default mode needs to be to stay with them, to keep teaching them, to keep modeling, to keep leading, to keep loving. Take the long view of what you want to see University Baptist Church like, like you do with your own dear wife. Number two, a correct perspective on eternity will help us be patient. As pastors, we have to know that we will one day be held accountable by God for the way we led and fed His lambs. All of our ways are before Him. He will know if we use the career of the congregation simply to build a career He will know if we led them or left them prematurely for our own convenience and benefit. He'll know if we drove his sheep too hard. Shepherd the flock on a way you will not be ashamed in the day of the Lord. Colossians 3. Do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done and that without partiality. You have to always minister with the end in view. And number three, success. And Brad, be careful here, because you're a gifted young man. If you define success in the way a lot of Southern Baptists tell you to define success, you will be deceived. If you define success in terms of immediately appreciable aspects size of the congregation, your desire for numerical growth could well outrun your patience with the congregation or perhaps even your fidelity to biblical methods. Either your ministry among God's people could be cut short because you could be fired or you'll resort to methods to draw a crowd that will cut down on preaching the true gospel. And that's so common in our day. You'll trip over the hurdle of ambition, whether yours or your fellow elders here. But if you will define success in terms of faithfulness, then you're in a position to persevere because you are released from the demand of immediately observable results, freeing you for faithfulness to God's message and methods, leaving numbers to the Lord. We have a pastor's conference every year called Together for the Gospel, where some of the men that you've been hearing preach here these last uh, few weeks are regularly preaching. And we're, Lord willing, going to have one of these conferences this coming April 
And uh, I've been giving some thought to the message I want to give there. And I want to give some thought, uh, some message on the danger of rapidity, of quickness of growth, because I think it kills so much good work. I think people don't understand the danger it is of wanting, demanding even, to see uh, numerical growth immediately. I think God seems happiest to entrust his flock to those shepherds who do things his way. And that means sometimes you're very patient and you wait to see obvious fruit. Confidence in the Christian ministry doesn't come from personal competence or kind of California charisma or from experience in finance or on Capitol Hill. It doesn't come from having the right programs in place or, or jumping on this or that bandwagon of the latest ministry fad. It, it doesn't even come from having degrees from Princeton or Southern. Much like Joshua, our confidence is to be in the presence and power and promises of God in Joshua chapter 1. More specifically, confidence for becoming and being a pastor comes from depending on the power of the Spirit to make us adequate through the equipping ministry of Christ's Word. We read in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul says, Such confidence we have through Christ toward God, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And how does the Spirit make us adequate? How, how does the Spirit give life? Through God's Word. Second Timothy 3, All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for proof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Why? So that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. The one thing that is necessary is the power of God's Word. Only the Bible is God's perfect Word. That's why preaching that Word and prayer will always be paramount. No matter what fads top the charts this year or next, stake your ministry on the power of the gospel. So success is faithfulness in these simple matters. It is staying focused on these in the whirl of competing priorities. So be patient. Preach and pray, love and stay. That's really a summary of it. Preach and pray, love and stay. Now, I've spent most of my time preaching to Brad, but congregation, you too are being given a precious stewardship. May I simply say a word to you about money, about marriage, and about moderation. About money, about marriage, and about moderation. First, about money. Look back in First Peter chapter 5. Did you notice that phrase in verse 2? Not for shameful gain. You know, I've actually heard with my own ears, not in a joking way, congregations say about their pastors, we'll keep him poor and God will keep him humble. That is a suspicious and an ungracious attitude to have to someone you would call as your pastor. Would you entrust him with your souls, but not with the resources that God has given you? Galatians 6, 6 tells you to share all good things with your instructor. Brad is your primary instructor. Realize that Brad's prospering as your pastor is not being forbidden here in 1 Peter 5, 2. 
as greed. University Baptist Church, you want to pray and act so that Brad's dear children will have nothing but good things to say about the way University Baptist Church treated their father. You realize they'll grow up quite quickly. And in God's will now, it looks like a lot of their growing up will be done in the context of you. You are bearing a huge responsibility to back up what Brad and Aaron are telling them about Jesus. And the way you treat Brad and Aaron is going to be a huge factor in that. You need to take that charge very seriously. Could I share with you one thing the congregation at Capitol Hill has done so well for me and my family? They have been generous to us. Our congregation has been very kind to me and my family. 1 Timothy 5.8 tells us that anyone who does not care for his immediate family is worse than an unbeliever. So care well for the wheelers. Entrust them with all you can and watch their model of generosity as faithful stewards. You won't regret the culture of generosity that that encourages here in this congregation. Second, a word about marriage. One main way that you care for your new pastor here is to care for his family. You realize if Satan wants to take a pastor out, all he has to do is aim at the pastor's wife. You realize that. Lots of people pray for the pastor. The pastor's wife is meanwhile involved in daily routine that looks just like everybody else's daily routine. And yet we'll usually hear a little bit more of the trials and troubles, even if Brad is very careful. She just can't help but hear a little bit more of the trials and troubles that go on in the church. She's always naturally going to be thinking for her family at the same time. So, friends, their marriage is going to be under particular attack. And that means you need to take that very seriously. So Brad is Aaron's only husband. You can get another pastor. You realize that. So his priorities need to be clear. And you need to encourage him in that. He's taken vows before God to care for Aaron. So congregation... Care for your pastor's family. Let Aaron do whatever she wants to do so long as she's supporting not the church, but Brad and her family. Don't put pressure on Aaron to care for the church directly. Because when she is caring for her husband and family, that is the best way she can care for this church. And she is the only one who can do that role. So you want to encourage her in that role. Celebrate any limits that Brad may put on Aaron's involvement. Brad put limits on Aaron's involvement, at least early on. Congregation, Aaron loves you best by loving her husband most. Realize that and encourage her and pray for her in that. And a last word for you, dear congregation, and that is moderate. Be moderate in your expectations of Brad, as prodigiously gifted and eager a young pastor as he may be. Let me share with you the words of one faithful pastor who had labored for decades with the congregation as he took leave of them. This is what he said. So the old pastor sitting there, been there 40 years, and he's telling the congregation something about the new pastor who's sitting there. And he says, For your own sake and your children's sake, Cherish and revere him whom you have chosen to be your pastor. Already he loves you, and he will soon love you as bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. It will be equally your duty and your interest to make his labors as pleasant to him as possible. Do not demand too much. Do not require visits too frequent. Should he spend in this way half the time 
which some demand, he must wholly neglect his studies, if not sink early under the burden. Do not report to him all the unkind things which may be said against him, nor frequently in his presence allude to opposition, if opposition should arise. Though he is a minister of Christ, consider that he has the feelings of a man. Brothers and sisters, Brad is a solid man with broad shoulders, but there is enough sin in any congregation to break the strongest pastor's spirit if not sustained by God and the congregation's wise kindness. Moderate your expectations of Brad. He will last longer. Shift your dependency to God in prayer. Now, I've spoken for quite a while. You've been very patient. God bless the nursery workers. Preaching, praying, personal discipling, and patience. One day before the American Revolution, it was a day of remarkable gloom and darkness and eclipse over the New England states, known for years afterwards simply as the dark day, a day when the light of the sun was slowly extinguished by an eclipse. The legislature of Connecticut was in session, and as its members saw the unexpected and unaccountable darkness coming on, they shared in the general terror and awe. And it was supposed that maybe the last day, the day of judgment, had come. And so someone in consternation moved the house to be adjourned. Then at that point there arose an old Puritan legislator, Mr. Davenport of Stamford. Brad, you're probably related to him in some way. Who stood and said that if the last day had come, he desired to be found at his place doing his duty. And therefore he moved that candles be brought in so that the house could proceed with its duty. I think there was a quietness in that man's mind. Uh, the quietness of heavenly wisdom and inflexible willingness to obey present duty. Brad, you and I should do our duty in all things, uh, like the old Puritan. You can't do more. We should never wish to do less. The ministry has private discouragements and public disappointments aplenty. In God's kindness, too, it often has compensating blessings even in this life. But we will never be faithful ministers in anything other than appearance if we minister only in terms of this life. I love that quotation of John Brown in a letter of paternal counsels to one of his pupils, newly ordained, over a small congregation, and he writes to them, he says, I know the vanity of your heart and that you will feel mortified that your congregation is very small in comparison with those of your brethren around you. But assure yourself on the word of an old man that when you come to give an account of them to the Lord Christ at his judgment seat, you will think you have had enough. We must remember what momentous work we're about and that on that day he will, even through the ministries of brothers like you and me, Bring many sons to glory. We want to live and minister always in light of that day. That's what I pray God will enable you to do, brother. Let's pray together. Lord God, it is a serious thing to undertake the pastoral charge of a church. We do pray again for our brother Brad and for his whole family that you would prepare them and equip them and bless them through this calling. 
We pray that this congregation would look back on this day as a day of marked blessing from you. We pray, Lord, that this room will soon be filled with people who, as of today, do not know you, but who come to know you in these weeks and months ahead. Own the preaching of your word here, we pray. Get glory to yourself. And, Lord, while we pray for this church and this ministry, we pray for other local churches here in Fayetteville and in the area that know and love you, that preach your word. Bless them. Lord, we pray that your word would be powerfully preached in all the churches in this community. We pray that churches that don't really believe your Bible will go out of existence. We pray, Lord, that they will just cease, that people will stop being interested. But, Lord, where your gospel is preached, we pray that you would show your own mighty power to change people's lives, to reconcile them to yourself, even as you've reconciled yourself to us in Christ. Own the ministry of this church to that end, we pray in Jesus' name.